This podcast is paid for by Kindrel. Whether it's to receive a parcel from overseas, take public transport, or use an FPOS machine, Kindrel helps businesses imagine things differently. Kindrel designs, builds, manages, and modernizes mission-critical technology systems that the world depends on every day. With an ecosystem of partners and intelligent technology practices, Kindrel unlocks new possibilities to drive your business forward. Discover more at kindrel.com. I'm Seamus Byrne, coming to you from Gundungra land, and this is the Tech Pulse podcast, presented by Guardian Labs and paid for by Kindrel. The Tech Pulse podcast is produced on Gadigal land. It's already clear that the 2020s is a decade that will be defined by change and uncertainty. A changing climate, a global pandemic, and geopolitical instability are all contributing to an era where nations, businesses, and the ideas that drive them must become more adaptable than ever before if they are to succeed. But as the saying goes, in every crisis lies opportunity. Locally, Australia is set to become the 12th largest economy in 2023 with a predicted GDP of $2.5 trillion. But predictions don't come true by themselves. So today we've brought together a group of leading thinkers on the economy and innovation to discuss how Australian businesses can use this moment to explore new solutions to big problems and thrive in a time of change. Tim Harcourt is the Industry Professor and Chief Economist at University of Technology, Sydney. Maria Loyes is Chief Customer Officer at Australian Ethical Super. And Sally Ann Williams is the CEO of Cicada Innovations. Also coming up later in the show, we'll be joined by Kindrel's Global Director of Innovation and Strategy, Warwick Kramer, who highlights why a focus on ESG, the so-called green transition, and having the right people are must-haves for organisations today. Thank you all so much for joining us on Tech Pulse. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Seamus. Thank you. Uh, so, Tim, I'll start with you. Broadly, what do you feel is the state of the economy today? Are there any hallmarks of businesses that are finding a way to prepare and take advantage of uncertain markets? Well, it's a tough time, isn't it? We had the sort of trifecta of tragedy. You know, we had the bushfires and then the floods and then uh, and then COVID and uh, uh, the uh, climate change. And what I, I've been amazed with is to what extent, um, uh, particularly in Australia, we go through uh, really pretty dire predictions, whether it be the Asian financial crisis or the, the GFC or now, and we come up a lot better than I always anticipate. And uh, I wonder whether um, sometimes the, you know, the overall macro commentary in Australia is a little bit dismal, a little bit pessimistic, uh, but the enterprises and the super funds and a lot of the NGOs are actually actually quite innovative. I was really interested in how manufacturing companies that weren't ever fashionable, like you know, Debt Moulds in in Adelaide, um, Geckos in Ballarat, changed their whole production partly to help the pandemic in terms of face masks and sanitizer and and so on. A lot of gin makers and craft beer makers started making sanitizer and actually did. Did reasonably well, and I've, I found that you know, travelling everywhere from um, Siberia to South America, that you did meet a lot of Australian companies that either are providing software or technology or something that we consider very trendy and innovative, but it was actually uh, in a lot of traditional industries like agriculture. So we seem to have 
uh, you know, some tough times ahead, but Australians seem to have some quite good uh, ways of dealing with, um, you know, quite quite dramatic events. So I've been perhaps pleasantly surprised, a little bit more cautiously optimistic than if I'd been with all of you, say, two years ago. Great. Uh, now, Maria, you're, when it comes to things like cost versus investment discussions, and that's always a big question when it comes to green transformations, you know, how do you help people to see the opportunities in responsible investment? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a big question, Seamus. I, I might just talk a little bit about uh, kind of some of the issues, first of all. So, um, you know, creating a sustainable future that's aligned to a 1.5 degree safe climate is actually a wicked problem. And, you know, it's also um, a systemic risk, which if we don't address it, actually could cause, you know, destabilize some of the, the functions of the financial markets um, as we as we know them. So there's two main causes for that. There's kind of physical risks, which is, you know, what happens to the environment? Do we have some really adverse weather conditions that actually cause destabilizing losses for insurance companies and banks and, and financial organizations. And then the second one is transition risk. So, you know, are we going to see big changes in the value of assets um, as a result of, you know, like, like carbon intensive assets, for example, which are going to cause big losses to investors? And, you know, the irony of it is that many financial institutions, you know, are really exposed to those physical and, and transition risks, but they're also actively increasing those risks, you know, by continuing to invest um, and provide financing to activities that intensify climate change. So, you know, we think that we're actually going to need uh, a systemic change to the finance system to kind of help solve this problem. And so, you know, what does that look like? And, and that's where I think we get into the answer to your, your question, because, you know, there's three and a half trillion in the superannuation industry in Australia alone. And, you know, that's invested, it's capital that's invested in companies that often are, you know, quite harmful. And so if we could move that capital away from companies that harm to companies that create positive impact in the world, I think that will create a big change. But that also then helps to fund the green transition. So, um, you know, that's how all of that kind of works. You know, one of the myths that I think is gradually being sort of debunked is that investing responsibly doesn't create returns. And I think, you know, Australian Ethicals, you know, we've been investing that way for over 35 years and we've got a really strong record of, uh, of long-term performance. Um, so, you know, I think we're a purpose-driven business, kind of feel like actually part of our role is trying to educate people about shifting their money, whether it's to us or, or not. It's, it's really important. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And now, Sally Ann, you're working hard to help great new businesses emerge in the space of deep tech. Can you actually explain for listeners who don't know a little bit about what deep tech is and why it holds great entrepreneurial potential for Australia? Yeah, look, Seamus, I'd love to. Um, deep tech is something that is often hard to grok for people in society and for them to get their head around because it's not something that they touch or feel or see as consumers on a day-to-day -day basis but they are primarily benefiting from it every single day in so many ways. So when we think about deep tech, you know, some of the characteristics of a deep tech company is it's an IP intensive uh, business. It's something that is founded on, you know, fundamental discovery through science or engineering. Um, it's research intensive in its early years. It's often very, very capital and intensive um, because there's a physical component to it. Uh, and in highly regulated markets. So if we think about recent shared global experiences of the pandemic and we think about mRNA vaccines and the solutions that we've sort of found to help us 
manage our way through the pandemic, that's sort of an example of a deep tech solution, which is not only the vaccine itself, but actually the production of mRNA, which is a completely new way of thinking about vaccines. And that technology isn't new. It didn't come around two years ago. You know, it's been 20 plus years in the making. Um, when we think about the transition to a green and uh, clean economy or an energy transition, things that are part of that transition are founded in fundamental research that could be, you know, born 20 to 30 years ago. And those products and services are only coming to the market now and consumers are seeing that. So deep tech is something that's fundamentally critical for us to actually think about a prosperous world and a world that is solving fundamental challenges. How are we dealing with heat and energy and electricity and all the fundamental things that we need for both our well-being but also for our businesses? All of those basic needs, if we were going to be rebuilding them from scratch and thinking about them in a sustainable way, it's an immense opportunity for us. And Australia is um, underperforming in the complexity of what we could be doing in this space, and yet we have all the foundational elements there to be a world leader uh, if we can get sort of out of that short term thinking about what is in it for me now and how do I get a return in this sort of one month, three months, three years? And how do I think about a long term prosperous future that benefits everybody as a whole? So it, it's a really complex, amorphous kind of idea when we say deep tech. But when we put down to companies that solve fundamental challenges that the entire world is facing, but they do it through creating a business and bringing those things to market that have a direct benefit for all of us, including investors as well. This podcast is paid for by Kindrel. Whether it's to receive a parcel from overseas, take public transport, or use an FPOS machine, Kindrel helps businesses imagine things differently. Kindrel designs, builds, manages, and modernizes mission-critical technology systems that the world depends on every day. With an ecosystem of partners and intelligent technology practices, Kindrel unlocks new possibilities to drive your business forward. Discover more at kindrel.com. Uh, so, Tim, uh, when it comes to, I guess, facing all these things that we're talking about, coming back to kind of ordinary businesses out there, I guess, how should they be trying to balance the need to be cautious in a crisis with that hunt for opportunities to, to build real positive momentum? One thing that I was really struck by when Sally Ann was speaking was that um, you find tech and innovation in all sectors. You don't have to just decide it's one thing. Uh, and the other thing that struck me also when Marie was speaking was that um, we did this series for DFAT, um, the Airport Economist Climate Innovation Series, where we thought rather than looking at Paris targets, let's go and interview some Australian companies that are already doing things in terms of renewable energy. And yeah, we met Tritidium up in Queensland that uh, were, were doing car batteries and transport. We met uh, uh, SEA who were making green um, garbage trucks and buses in terms of transport. Uh, and we also met a lot of companies that were building the communities back from the terrible bushfires using green materials. Uh, so it was quite interesting. It was sort of like you could see as people came back from the bushfires that they decided uh, we're going to rebuild again and we're going to rebuild sustainably. It was sort of like putting the green back in the green and gold. So I think in in some ways, you know, if the if the incentives are right and the, the environment's right and you can make a, a good business case, that's what's going to drive it. So in some ways, if it makes good business sense, uh, then people will 
get on board. And I think that's why a lot of the signals have been right and getting the framework right uh, as well really helps. So I think in answer to your question, Seamus, I think ultimately people do have to go out and look for new markets and invest in new products uh, whilst being real, reasonably cautious about you know, protecting their protecting their market share. Mm. Now, Maria, um, when it comes to this process of transformation, I guess both digital, which can you know, have green benefits alongside it, but then green transformations themselves, how do you sort of fit together all these ideas around like authenticity of experience and customer experience, as well as like loyalty and trust aspects that are going to come up more and more as, as this process continues? Yeah, it's a really good question. And look, I think um, digital transformation doesn't have to impact on, on authenticity or, or customer experience. In fact, it should really enhance customer experience. I think we're all in a digital world now. We we don't necessarily um, always, you know, we might want to have the opportunity to speak to someone on the phone, but we don't necessarily um, want to have to. So uh, uncovering the, the deep customer insight at all parts of the journey making sure that you um, address those through each part of the journey and provide the right information. Um, we probably were the, the kind of first super fund to sell um, super directly to customers through digital channels, actually. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're the fastest growing super fund over five years. And we've also, we've got really engaged customers. We've got the number one NPS and advocacy um, in the market. But I, I would say that's actually because people are really interested in what it is that we do and the way that we do it. So I think there's, you know, there's digital experience, but it's also actually showing your authenticity and, you know, what you're doing, which will come through anything really. But I'd say, you know, we do have a trust issue in our in our industry. There's lots of investment companies that jumped on the ESG bandwagon. And it's, it's a real problem because it's stopping people from making that shift because they're worried about whether they're doing the right thing. And, you know, a lot of people are investing in maybe in, a, in an ESG fund, but if it's using ESG integration, they might find actually that... Um, whilst they're wanting to, to create responsible and social solutions while generating a return, they're actually finding that they're investing in harmful stock and it can be a big shock to people. So there's an issue from a sort of regulatory perspective there. There's no legal definition around what's ethical. Anyone can call themselves an ethical or a sustainable fund. And so people have got to be prepared to ask questions at the moment. And as a provider, through our digital experience, we need to be answering those questions as well. So, you know, you know, how do you screen? How do you, what is your investment policy? And helping people to know whether their values align with that, you know, showing the impact that you're creating and showing how you've calculated it and being really transparent about that. So, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to do in that space. Um, now, uh, Sally Ann, I'd love your thoughts on how deep tech fits into these questions of economic complexity, because you know, we sort of hear some talk that if we should be trying to make sure we're making, I guess, money in lots of different kinds of things, and that diversity of economics might might be helpful. I'm sure sort of Tim has thoughts on this as well. But yeah, I'd love your thoughts on how things like deep tech fit into that question of innovating in lots of different areas. A great question. So deep tech is absolutely critical to the conversation around economic complexity. It's actually at the heart of it and it drives it. Australia has been tanking in our economic complexity over the last 20 years. It's not new to us, but the slide and the decline is becoming more rapid. And if you look at the Harvard Economic Complexity Index, we're down around nations like Kurdistan and other nations that you would be surprised to see us alongside given the size of our economy. Now, the problem that we have is if we don't actually reverse this, if we don't start building companies that solve some of our fundamental challenges through building R&D intensive science and engineering founded businesses, 
One, we don't solve the problems in the world. So let's just recognize that the uh, future that we might be living in is one that's going to be faced with more severe, you know, uh, severe weather events um, and some really harsh environments that we may not want to be a part of. There'll be more pandemics, all of those things, and it'll be really challenging. But more than that, just as a nation, for future generations, they're not going to have jobs and economic opportunities. And we'll actually see a broadening in the divide between um, you know, the, the, the poverty levels in Australia. We'll see an increase in poverty and a lack. And that just leads to a whole bunch of complexity around you know, health and well-being um, and opportunities for people. So for me, this is one that's just an absolute no-brainer that we need to be thinking about the long term and going, how do we drive a complex economy that is fueling opportunities, not just for a political time frame of three years, but is actually fundamentally fueling opportunities for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. So when we develop policy settings and policy levers and things like that, that are multi-decadal for us in Australia, we actually start to put in motion sort of like a perpetual flywheel of innovation and opportunity um, and then drive things like investment spending. You know, if government is backing something and saying we're going to solve this problem, investors will line up behind that because there's a certainty around it. There's some degree of, of guarantee and certainty. There's a vision that people can get behind. Consumers will get behind it. They will buy it. They will de-risk it. Um, and we're not asking something that is impossible. You know, I think when we think about economic complexity in Australia, we've got incredible natural strengths and capabilities in traditional industries that are all transforming, that are all massive opportunities for us. And instead of looking at them as problems, how do we look at them as solutions and consider what the economic benefit is, but also the long term sort of prosperity benefit for us all in that? I think it's when you when you map it out and when you look at it, when you look at Germany and when you look at countries around the world who are focused on continually reinventing themselves to maintain a, a complex economy and, and they're investing in R&D, they're investing in manufacturing, they're investing in their natural skills and aligning that to global problems. The question is, why don't we? And what is the conversation that's happening around the boardrooms in Australia to do that. And for me, that's the biggest area of concern that I have in this conversation. I think business is a little slow on the uptake on this one. And when you look at what are the pressing problems in boardrooms, I was at a lunch earlier uh, in the week, and what they were all saying, all of these chairs of these, you know, listed companies were talking about was short-term, one- and three-year horizon problems. And for me, that precludes you from investing in deep tech and it precludes you from thinking about what the business can be in 20 to 30 years' time. So I think we've got some work to do to get everybody on the same page for it. But fundamentally, if we don't do it, we're just going to decline and decline and decline and the jobs and opportunities in Australia are going to become less interesting and we'll see that continued brain drain. And it's a pretty sad story when we've got the opportunity to be the opposite and be a magnet for a global talent attraction. Mm. Now, Tim, it feels like there's a good you know, sense of that long-term sort of thinking attached to that idea. But I think another sort of question around this is that idea of how businesses can scale effectively. Uh, I'd love your thoughts on, you know, if non-linear growth is sort of more difficult right now, whether that's closely tied to digital transformations or even if there are things like employee experience that sort of feed into how you can scale a business effectively? It's an interesting question, isn't it? We've got to be clear about means and ends. You know, the role of the federal government and the treasurer is to provide full employment, low inflation and continued economic prosperity. Whether we're in deficit or surplus, it really is not your end. It's means to the end. And so when you think about economic complexity, our goal is full employment, 
improving living standards, improving prosperity and, and opportunity in the future. Uh, to what level of economic complexity will deliver it? Will we be more economically complex but not deliver those indicators or, or less and will atrophy? And I think you know, a lot of people think, what's our comparative advantage? But as Sally Ann was putting out, uh, you know, your comparative advantage can, can change as conditions change. I was thinking about um, you know, agriculture. With the Russia-Ukraine war, you know, you've taken almost uh, you know, 40% of agricultural exports out of Ukraine as farmers have got off their tractors and picked up weapons to, uh, to fight Putin. And we've seen Australia filling that gap, you know, exporting not, not just um, uh, around Asia, Indonesia, China, Japan, Korea and so on, but you know, to Yemen and, and Nigeria and Egypt. And really the global food crisis is, is a very important issue. Uh, we saw in the Middle East, the, the uprising of the Arab Spring and some of the uh, geopolitical instability coming from, uh, from a global food crisis. More recently in Sri Lanka with the uh, overthrowing of the prime minister there. So they, these types of issues that, that Sally Ann was mentioning do have very important geopolitical consequences. And I think uh, to some extent, COVID and um, the recent bushfires and so on made you know, people very conscious of crisis management. So ultimately, you have to have you know a long-term reform transformation agenda as well as managing the you know day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year crises uh, you know as part of your responsibility. Mm. Now, look, uh, we're I know we're starting to run short on time, so I'll start some uh, uh, lightning round style uh, uh, quick responses from here. But uh, Sally Ann, I'd love your thoughts on you know which sectors are exciting you most for where Australian businesses can grow new businesses that can compete globally. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you want lightning fast? (laughs) Okay, the abridged version, ag, but not just actually in traditional ag and production of it, but how do we deal with on-farm waste? So 80% of everything that happens on-farm is waste, which is a huge carbon problem, but a huge opportunity for us to solve. So plug out for one of our resident companies, Sustenant, who is actually dealing with that and is in partnership and collaboration with Sunshine Sugar, got a pilot production plant dealing with that problem right now and turning that into enriched fodder and other byproducts that can be resold. So, you know, people that do this is a twofold thing. I'm not just solving a food thing and an agricultural problem, but I'm actually solving a carbon challenge as well. Health is one that we are brilliant in, but not just diagnostics, but also therapeutics. Um, I'm actually really, 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 really excited, though, about new materials. I fundamentally believe if we can make breakthrough technologies in this, and I'm going to give another plug for a Cicada resident, Zefco, but if we can solve this challenge and we can actually figure out how to make fibres and materials that are sustainable and that are biodegradable, that require no harsh chemicals and only 10% of the water required in the dyeing process, you know, we deal with one of the biggest carbon problems on the planet, which is clothing production and waste. It's a huge challenge. You know, these are opportunities for us in Australia, but I don't actually think we need to pick winners in this. I think what we need to pick is what are the biggest problems and who is directly solving that? And they will be, if we surround them with capital talent and opportunities, they will be winners in that. Um, And so those are probably the ones that are exciting me the most right now. But I get very excited very easily Um, because the ambition of these people is, you know, they really do want to solve a problem, but they think about it from a very commercial lens of going, this is how we integrate into a supply chain, into somebody else's business practices, 
into somebody else's company and organization. And for me, those things, those hidden things, those really boring systemic changes are the ones that make the biggest impact uh, for people, planet and prosperity. Yeah. Now, uh, Maria, uh, are there any investment categories that you see as particularly exciting here in Australia for the decade ahead? Um, well, we've got a snap, I reckon, Sally-Anne, because I'd say clean energy, which I'm not going to talk about a lot because it's talked about a lot, um, and food production. Food production is a tricky one to talk about, though, because you know, we all know that it contributes you know, somewhere between a quarter and a third of carbon emissions. And we all know that you know, per gram of protein, red meat is 20 times more than kind of plant-based protein. But the reality is that not everybody wants to, to give up red meat, right? So I know my son is, is struggling with that concept. Um, and farmers have it really tough. And you know, weather variability has always been really challenging for farmers and investors alike. And that's the drought and floods. It's only going to make it worse. So I think matching what Sally-Ann said, I think there's going to be and, and likely from deep tech, that innovation in farming practices that leads to better sustainability. I think there's massive opportunity for investors and farmers alike to generate additional income from you know the carbon markets through soil and and land generation a regeneration. And I think you know adjusting the land use to to the plant based food markets which are expanding very rapidly um, but the reality is that for you know for investors people listening that kind of go right what can I invest in now there's not really much from an equity perspective that you can invest in right now you know we see a lot of investors coming to us wanting an investment solution that gives them some exposure to those assets but also and um, they can get access to the sector without having to become deep experts I think, Sally, and what you were saying there was super interesting. I think we're going to need systemic change, not only in the financial markets, but also probably in government and policy and political donations and things, and even sort of the way that we think about stakeholders um, So and trying to remove some of that short-term thinking. Mm. Look, some closing thoughts now from each of you, uh, for, you know, for the listeners out there uh, I mean Sally Ann I'll come to you first what what lessons do you actually feel wider businesses can take from the way that you've seen people approaching things like deep tech innovation so I think the thing I would say about this is during the pandemic we saw lots of businesses struggle and falter um, however not one of our 50 over 50 resident companies struggled or faltered they all grew they all have received investment and they kept on going. And the reason being is if you're looking for opportunities, look to some of the most wicked challenges. They're the hardest things to solve, but they're guaranteed a return on investment if you can solve them and bring something through to market. So my message to the broader business community in Australia is don't be complacent. The greatest innovations that we've ever seen historically and history serves us that out of the greatest crises and the greatest challenges, the greatest solutions are brought to bear. So when you're sitting around a boardroom table, when you're sitting with your C-suite, if you've got a strong balance sheet, think about what the opportunities are to invest for the future of your business with a decadal mindset or a you know 30-year mindset um, and plan for that and find the partners in Australia that can work with you on that because the opportunities where some see crisis, it's just the opposite side of that coin is an opportunity. And, and I think we need a little bit more of a reframing every time we see problem going to what could the solution be and who could help us get there. And, and I'm very bullish on the fact that we need to do more of that solution-based focus and driving systemic change in Australia. 
Fantastic. Now, Tim, when it comes to killer instinct is often a big part of people thinking about how to chase an opportunity, but I'd love your thoughts on, you know, is there something to be said for partnership mindsets uh, instead of just a purely competitive one? You know, I, I actually agree with Sally Ann. You know, there's 50,000 exporters out there solving problems. Uh, there's a lot of people in the media scaring us and dividing us and carrying on. But ultimately, there's so many small businesses in Australia solving problems and doing great things. And you think about the future in terms of uh, hydrogen and aluminum and lithium, a lot of our sources of clean and cheap energy will actually make food processing and mineral processing very cheap in Australia. You know, we can be you know, a clean energy superpower and that will ultimately help our manufacturing and our mineral processing and our food processing to, to save the world. So I think that's gonna be uh, another opportunity for us. Uh, as we rethink, reskill, and rebuild uh, Australia. Brilliant. Tim, Maria, Sally Ann, thank you so much for joining us on Tech Pulse. Thank Pleasure. you. Thanks, Seamus. To explore this topic a little more, we are now joined by Warwick Kramer. He's the Global Director of Innovation Strategy at Kindrel. Warwick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Seamus. Thank you for having me here. From that discussion we've just listened to, what stands out strongest uh, from this discussion for you? You know, it was a really great discussion and I got a lot of sort of key takeaways from it. I mean, listening to Maria, Sally Ann and Tim, I think reflecting back on all the things that they said, probably there was three main core themes that really resonated for me personally. Number one, more emphasis on ESG and that sort of green transition. And I think that conversation even five years ago was really not front of mind for a lot of organisations. And now today it is a must have. There was discussion around short term versus long term. And if you, you sort of look in that context, um, that short-term view, even though you know a, a lot of organizations are driven by sort of those quarterly numbers, um, having that longer-term perspective and thinking around, you know, what are those disruptors that are gonna come into our business, which could potentially be left field, right? And, uh, and really upset uh, the, the organization. So around the better planning, but more so a longer-term view overall. And the third was really about thinking around the right incentives, you know, making sure that the policy also that governments are placing, putting in place incentivize um, the innovation narrative, but also giving companies the opportunity to grow in a very collective and collegiate way of uh, working together, as opposed to coming back to that short-term view. So they were really my three takeaway shaders. Yeah, fantastic. And now look, in your role, Obviously, you talk to new startups. You know, how do you encourage an optimistic mindset in the face of a pretty difficult outlook? You know, it, it's a really great question because when I think around the current outlook, it's all doom and gloom, right? But I think you, you have to always take a step back. And it's really about, uh, you know, from an organizational point of view, thinking around about trying new things, but being very focused, the importance of focus and asking the question why and what is that outcome? So from a startup point of view, when a startup is actually going out there and talking to a large organization's advice, I always give all of them is thinking about that outcome. Where's the value going to come from? Having that laser focus from a delivery point of view and really being able to, you know, peel back all the shiny buzzwords and all the, the wonderful sort of stuff that everyone sort of says and overcomplicates everything and really go back to the core of what you're trying to achieve. And I think once you can actually do that and peel back all of that, um, that's when I think the, the true value and that outcome can come from. And uh, and I think once you do that, that's how 
um, organizations really can and, and startups can really navigate through those sort of difficult sort of challenges that we're all presented with uh, currently in today's climate. Yeah, no, that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, so lastly, I guess for broader Australian businesses, how do you feel like they need to think about leveraging technology to become more dynamic, more responsive, again, in these sort of market forces that we're facing? You know, I never start with the technology. I start with the people. And I think, you know, you need the right people to be able to unlock the right technology. It's really identifying, um, you know, do you have the right people to be able to do the implementations quicker? Does your organization have the right processes that foster that speed of implementation across the organizations? Because the technology really, Seamus, is the easy part. I think it's when you add the people into it and, and those cultural barriers that sometimes emerge in the organizations and the processes aren't, aren't conducive to that sort of forward thinking, um, that's when it tends to fall over and people just look at technology to solve those problems. And I think you have to put both of them together in order to really be dynamic and to be successful and to be able to deliver what, what needs to be done from a customer perspective. Fantastic. Warwick Kramer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. For more conversations like this, search for Kindrel Tech Pulse podcast on Guardian Australia or wherever you get your podcasts. The Tech Pulse podcast is produced by Guardian Labs Australia. It's hosted by Seamus Byrne. The Guardian Labs producers are Alison Tanner-Disastro and Jodie Weatherup. The executive producer and Guardian Labs head of content is Justine O'Donnell. Our sound recordist is Dan McHugh. Our sound editor is Mel Chun. And the Tech Pulse podcast is paid for by Kindrel. <laughs> <laughs>